0: We have been going and working our way through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is our practice to preach expositorily, and that is by verse by verse as we go through the scriptures. And so many times it's it's not unusual for people to need to preach topical. Those are they have their place. It's a good thing sometimes. But what is needed in our churches today is a well balanced understanding of what the Bible teaches in its context. It is good for the Christian to be trained in this way, to have the lessons taught and to have the scriptures preached in this manner. And so we are now beginning chapter 6. We have the first half of this chapter. Last week we will be finishing chapter 6 today. I want to give you the simple lesson right now up front so you know what to take home. And it's this, learning the doctrines of God And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, will teach us to be patient and to endure unto the end. If you recall, many times when we have gone through the first uh, chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter, we have seen how the Lord has stressed the idea, you need to endure to the end. This is the patience of the saints This is where we need to have the strength of being able to be consistent in our witness to God and to our fellowship with the Lord and in this present evil world provide a light that they can see Christ. So I will have a a bit of a review. I'm going to review just a little bit more than I normally do. But what we need to remember so far is that the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is a book of apocalyptic visions These were given to the Apostle John in the Isle of Papnes when he was exiled because of his own witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he preached the gospel. And he was given visions and he was told to write them down and had had been given seven letters to give churches in Asia Minor that we call today where Turkey is. Those seven churches. And so the very first vision, there are seven of them, the very first vision was found in Revelations chapters 1 through 3, where John saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ walking among the candlesticks which are his churches. And there were seven churches. He was a magnificent revelation of who the Lord is. Brees like, like burnished bronze, eyes like fire. Uh, his, his, his raiment was white and glowing like a high priest. And he walked among his people. And we can see from this vision how it went uh, from there that God is now walking among his churches here. Of all these seven individual visions that we see, we can, we can see how Christ is saying to his people, from the time that I came and gave my own blood and resurrected from the dead to the time when he comes back in judgment, that is the span of time that will be covered in these apocalyptic visions, and each one of them will cover that whole time. The first vision about Him walking among His people. He walks among us here, all of His churches, and He sent letters to each one, and every church had its own particular problem. And your own particular promises. And so very briefly, I want to tell you about the promises to each church. Because I want you to think of those promises as we go through the second half of chapter 6. Because the second half of chapter 6 tells us two things. There were martyrs who will die. And their souls are beneath the altar in heaven. And then comes the judgment. That's basically all there is in that vision. Of course, it started with the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. And then we see the souls of the martyrs beneath the altar. And then the judgment comes. That's everything from the time of Christ to the judgment. But I want you to think about the promises to the individual churches. To the first church in Ephesus, this is the promise. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Simply, it says this, they shall inherit eternal life. That is the promise. But notice, he says, to the one who overcomes. Now in ESV, it says, to the one who conquers. Remember how Christ said, I have overcome the world. But what happened to our Christ? They put him on a cross. What the world thinks is conquering and winning and overcoming is not what God says is. He came to die for sins and he overcame. When John says, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, when he looked, he saw a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. What the world sees and what is truth is not going to be the same. And so when we look at these promises, remember, he that overcomes may overcome the way our Lord overcame, by dying. It's not the victory that the world thinks is victory, but it is the victory that God has given to us. To Pergamum, or to Smyrna, the second church, He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. They have the promise, and all of us do. Every one of us, though we may not be living in Pergamum, he tells us and gives us his promise, they shall never die. Spiritually, they shall never die, even though their flesh will drop, whether by natural death or by the sword of persecution. In Pergamum, To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in this stone a new name, written, which no man knows, saving he that receives us. Every Christian who overcomes, they shall receive unbreakable promises of God. God will give them the knowledge that He is their God. He has their name, and we have His name. He owns us, and we own Him. In public, in front of all. In Thyatira, He that overcomes and keeps my words unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give them, give him the morning star. The word of God is the means of grace that he will rule over the hearts of his people, but also the law of God that will hold them under the dominion of the law, and they will be in His hand, and we shall be in Him on His throne. We sit even now in heavenly places in Christ, as Paul has told us. To Sardis, He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now I will not blot out His name out of the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. The promise is this, to those who overcome, to those who conquer, they shall be justified From their sins in the sight of all. In the sight of all. He will own us. And we shall own him. To Philadelphia. He that overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. And I will write upon him. The name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. Which is the new Jerusalem. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him. My new name. This is the promise to those who overcome, written to those in Philadelphia. They shall find their home in God. This world is not our home. We'll be reading in the scriptures in a few minutes how those that dwell upon the earth. And he said, well, that's where we are. The, oh, the earth is not our home. This is not where we dwell. We dwell in the presence of God. God has made it so. Christ has ushered us into his presence. In Laodicea to him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my whole in my throne. Even I also overcame, I am set down with my father in his throne. We shall rule with Christ on his throne. That is the first vision. And it goes from the beginning to the very end, because Christ walks among his people. He walks among his churches. And the vision, the second vision, which begins with chapter four, and it goes through five. 6, 7, and the very first verse of chapter 8. This vision tells us where Christ was given the throne, or given the, the scroll to open. It begins with God sitting on his throne, and that all the universe is centered around that throne. Everything that we may think about this world, we may have fear of who can do what, what Putin can do, what she can do, what. All the powers of this world can be done. But I'll tell you there's only one throne of which we would say only that throne is to be considered for the Christian and that is the throne of God. Everything surrounds that. We worship before that throne and all the worship of God is described in the first chapter of, of, uh, of chapter 4 of that vision. In chapter 5, we saw how the, how the Lamb of God took the scroll because he had authority and he had been authenticated. He, this is so because he was worthy. He was worthy. We'll spend more time on that idea about Christ being authenticated to do this. Having the authority to do this because he was worthy. And so we have the Lamb of God worshipped as the sovereign king. In breaking the scrolls, that is the seals that are on the scroll, I spent much time telling you about how he was authenticated. In other words, he had the authority and has the authority to break these seals and these things happen by virtue of his authority. All power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to our Christ as the Gospels has already told us. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Because he died for his people. And all that has to be done can only be done by the one who dies for the sinners that he's saving. He is the almighty God. He has power. He can force his way through, but he does not force his way through sin. He does, so, he does what he does from a worthy viewpoint, from the ability of saying, I am the holy one, not Machiavellian. You know what that means, right? Doing things in a wrong way to get good things done. God does not do that. He does not achieve good things by doing wrong things. He does good things by doing good things. He dies for sinners to save them. He pays for the sin. Justice is always elevated up. And true holiness is always his goal. And it will be done. And so, in the first chapter of chapter 6, we saw the four horsemen, the horses. And when the seal was broken, the first seal, then the first one came out. A white horse These things were to address. There will be conquest. There's many different ideas of what that means. We'll not get into it now. We've already discussed that. But conquest will be done. The second horse, war is going to be fought. From generation to generation, we see wars. Then famine. And then death. We said that even though there have been times when peace broke out upon the earth, there's always been a time where men will have conquests there will be war there will be famine there will be death such a it's like a common everyday thing in the history of man but even more so for the people of god even more so for those people that own his name they have been killed all the day long remember the scripture all the day long they feed upon god's people today we look at the fifth seal the seals that will reveal that there are martyrs now, even now, under the altar of God. And the sixth seal will reveal that great day of judgment. So as we go through the seals today, as we continue this, please remember what the promises are to the churches. All those who overcome. And how will they overcome? It works a little bit like this. If you condense down all those promises, we can really sum this up with four things. What does it look like to overcome in this present evil world? Number one, the truth of the Word of God, and especially the Gospel of Christ, will be the means of grace to break the power of sin in the hearts of those sinners who do actually overcome. It is the power of the Gospel. Number two, they shall be justified from their sin in the sight of all of creation. We shall stand up and proclaim that it is Christ and His righteousness that justifies us from sin. We are not ashamed of that. We stand as sinners saved by grace, by His power. It will be known and understood. Number three, they shall receive the unbreakable promises of God that they shall rule with Christ on His throne, seated in heavenly places in Christ. We must understand this if we understand nothing else. Christ is on His throne and He rules. He is a sovereign God. Nothing is done without His permission, without His guidance. Why do we know this? Because He has the authority to break those seals. He has the authority to do what is decreed to be done. And lastly, they have the hope that gives them strength to endure. The hope of eternal life. Knowing that they will never die in spirit, They will find their eternal home in the presence of God. God's people will still, now, in this time, endure unto the end, even when it comes to the sword of man. So let's look at the observations that we'll make today. We'll cover verses 9 through 17, the remaining part of this chapter. Let me read verse 9 to you. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Number one, we see that He actually, again, showing that He is authenticated, that He has the authority. He opened the seal. We went through the idea that He was authenticated, authorized. He is authorized to show by His worthiness that all that is going to happen, all the lives that are under that altar, which are the souls of those who have been murdered and sacrificed for the glory of Christ, that they were there, not by accident and not by the Satan saying, I will do what God will not let me do. I will go and do and harm God's people. Even though he does not permit me to do it, I will break the rules and do it. No. He is sinning against God and those who murder God's people do so with their own wicked hands. But rest assured, God is not out of control. Rest assured, he is not out of control. Remember Job. Remember all the things that happened to him. And he did not charge God foolishly. He is authorized by his sovereign power to allow this world to persecute his followers because it seems good in his sight. The altar is in heaven. Remember that there was an altar in the wilderness. There was also an altar in the temple. But those altars were shadows. They pointed to the real thing that is in heaven. And right now, this apocalyptic vision, John is seeing this altar. This is showing the substance that cast the shadows that were built by the hands of men from the patterns given to Moses. They were made of gold. They were made of wood. They were put into a tent. They were put into a temple. But this is not that altar. This altar is in heaven. In Leviticus chapter 4 verse 7 we read this that sacrifices are slain on the bronze altar outside of the holy place. And this is where these souls are at. It says in Leviticus that once a sacrifice is made part of the blood is taken from that sacrifice and applied to the four horns of the altar of incense. There That blood is to prepare for the saints' prayers to be presented to God, presented by the intercessor, by Christ, the high priest. The remainder of that blood is poured beneath the altar. And we know that the life is in the blood. We know that the blood was shed in order to give life for us. And that blood there represents, as we see in Revelation chapter 6, the souls of those who died as martyrs to Christ. We can see that their lives were sacrificed on an altar. Now, were they sacrificed to pay for their sin? No. Our Lord sacrificed himself for our sins, but they were sacrificed there, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, as a living sacrifice to serve their God. In service, they were sacrificed. Their martyrdom was not chosen by their own words, by their own actions. But God says, do my will, obey my word. And the world said, if you do, you shall die. But they loved God more than their own lives. They owned his name when they could have escaped death by abandoning God. But they did not. They did not. Their martyrdom was accepted by Christ because we see their blood onto the altar. We can see that their lives being sacrificed in this way was approved by the divine decree and that they died at the hands of sinful men. Remember what is said by Peter in the book of Acts. You have taken Christ by wicked hands and have slain him as was ordained by the will of God. We need to continue to own the name of Christ. This is the time in which Christians are going to be targeted. They're going to be shot in their own schools. They're going to be targeted by those who say, I want you to accept sin the way I am. And if you do not accept sin, or even approve of my sin, I'll come after you. There must come a time when which we stand against sin. We own the name of Christ. Verse number 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, and holy and true, how long before we'll, uh, we'll, you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now this sounds like a cry of those people below the altar. And who are they? And who are they? And where are they? Well, they have already died. They're in the presence of God. Remember this thief that died on the cross next to Christ? He said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he says, this day will you be with me in paradise? Now these saints, these loved ones of God who died in service to God and were martyred, their souls may be below the altar, but it doesn't mean that they're not in paradise. It doesn't mean that they're not in the presence of God, enjoying the face of God. It shows in the apocalyptic vision that they are there crying out to God for justice. The ESV uses the word cry. The word actually means to come... To to, to cry out something that's stuck in the throat like a croak. And they cry out, and they're ready to ask God, even though they are in heaven, they are still praying. But, remember, these are no longer in pain. These are no longer suffering. They are in the presence of God. But they cry out to God, acknowledging that He is the Sovereign Lord, with power and authority. That they know that their lives that had been sacrificed was not by accident. But they have willingly given their lives. As Paul says that we should also. A willing sacrifice lived for the glory of God. They were gloriously aware that he is holy and true. That's That's how they addressed him. You are holy and true. But I want you to notice that their words are not the words calling for vengeance for themselves. They're not. They cry out, how long will you not avenge our blood? But they are not calling for vengeance upon They're not there saying words like this. Oh, if only the people that killed me could be now receive their own punishment. Oh, how we would love to see them in pain. Oh, how we would love to see them get their just deserts. But that's not what they're saying. They're truly not. Even the Lord has told us clearly that he not, does not take the light and the punishment of the wicked. But what He does delight in is justice and what is right. And they call out for justice. They are not complaining. They are only seeking the vindication that God is right and the world is wrong. That He says, to avenge our blood we will have justice rule over injustice. We'll have God achieve what God has always promised to achieve. That vengeance belongs to God and not to them. Avenge our blood. You avenge our blood, not us. You. God will repay. Every sin against God can be measured in this way. When God's people are persecuted, they only persecute God's people because they persecute God and you are there. Christ said, don't be, a, don't be surprised. <laughs> they, they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've killed Christ, they will try to kill you. And every sin against a Christian is a sin against God. Every murder of a Christian is an attempted murder of God. And this is what they cry out for. That God may avenge himself. All the martyrs ask this question. How long? How long will it be until you are avenged? That is the question that almost every Christian asks. How long will it be? How long will it be until God comes back? And so the question is this. When is the end? When will that great day of judgment come? When will there be a new heaven and a new earth? When will we be in your presence, all of us together? When is that great day coming? We ask, when will the sin stop? Let's go to verse number 11. Then they were given a white robe, each of them, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so we can see that these are not the prayers of saints on the earth. They are not saying, we are suffering so much, please come and rescue us. This is not what God's people, this is, this is, this is not what's being shown. They are already in the presence of God. They are there, each one of them given a white robe. I would imagine this. Until the day comes when they are given a body suitable to be in the presence of God, they will need to wear something. And a white robe is very appropriate. It does remind us that Christ has given us His own righteousness, that we stand before Him not in our own righteousness, but in His. But we will have some type of representation of a person in the presence of God. So no doubt, This robe represents the righteousness of Christ, but also no doubt at the very least, it shows that they are holy in His sight, and God has accepted the sacrifice of their life, and even their death in His service to them. And so they were told to rest a little longer. That implies this, they are already at rest. But now they need to continue to rest just a little longer. How long? Until all their brethren, like them, will die. That's how long. Now God is not apologizing for the death of his saints. It's not as though he's saying, if I could only do it in a different way, if it's only possible that we could get through this without my people dying. No, he says, the time will come when the other brethren will die also. And do they complain? No. No one will complain about serving God in heaven. No one will complain when they look at the difference of the great difference of what they have sacrificed to what they have gained. Living for the glory of God is a privilege. Those who have given their lives in service to God have never regretted it. We live in a very important time, a time in which we can serve God without fear. Why without fear? Because we know God is on his throne. We know that he is in charge. Luther said about the devil. Oh, he's the devil, but he's the Lord's devil. Oh, sin may be strong, but God is still on his throne. Let's go to verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read these together because they belong together. The, very, uh, the previous section had to do with the saints who were suffering and who were martyred. Okay, so let's get this picture. The apocalyptic vision that we're looking at right now begins with the four horsemen. War, famine, death. And then what do we see? Men and women who have been martyred for Christ below the altar. And then what? Judgment. That's the big picture. That's what this vision is saying. From the time of Christ to the time He comes back, there's going to be war and famine and death. And God's people will be sacrificed. And then he's coming back. That is division. That is one perception. But the one overriding idea, that the one perspective that we must never forget, that it is Christ who opens the seals and says, I have done this. I have brought this to pass. They are not here by accident. We are under his wing. We are his people. So let me read these three verses. And uh, after that, there will be three more verses. And it all has to do with the judgment. Now, the first three verses deal with the physical creation. The last three verses deal with the people. Okay, so that's why we've divided this up into three different verses each. So let's read these verses together, verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and so we see that as soon as christ broke this seal these things happened why because he has the authority to make it happen now we must remember that these these events they all happen from the beginning to the end and this are the events of the end." When it comes to the idea that we have seen these physical creation things impacted in such a way, the earth experiences earthquakes, the sun becomes black, the moon becomes like blood, the stars fall from the sky. Now these have to be interpreted. They are apocalyptic visions, but it doesn't mean that even in the interpretation, that they are not going to physically happen. On that great day, we know from Second Peter, and let me read it to you. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies that were burned up and the dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be and lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It does not mean that these things are all to be explained by other things, but we must understand also that when God shows John a vision, it's something to behold that we should see something like this. These visions are not isolated. They have been throughout the scriptures. Isaiah speaks of it in chapters 32 and 50. Habakkuk speaks of it in chapter 3. Joel speaks of it in his book chapters 2 and 3. All these things that are going to happen. I would like to also point out in the book of Joel how it was quoted by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching. And please note that these physical characteristics were quoted when he said, This is that. He was very specific. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. This is on the day of Pentecost, when they were speaking in tongues, when they were saying the gospel, preaching the gospel in a language that people could understand from a distant land where they came from. But Peter, standing among the eleven, lifted up, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was uttered by the, through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And are seeing it right then. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will preach. And your young men shall see visions, just as John did, as others did. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and in the signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. Did not the earth come completely dark at the time of our Christ's crucifixion? And did not bodies rise up out of the grave when he rose from the grave? Was not the earth shaken? All these things happen, And yet, even when all these things came to pass, they are only a preview of what's going to happen on that great day when God comes back and this earth is all going to be consumed. The blackness will be there. The sun will no longer shine. It's in a great event, something that we need to understand and have faith in God over. I want you to now to receive some of my opinions, take it with a grain of salt, but this is what I think, because I cannot give you that this is the Word of God, but I'll give you what I think about it. When we hear about the the creation of this world being turned into, into, into flame, why does the Lord bring up the sun and the moon and the stars? He gives us in these last six verses verses, a description of the creation and a description of people. But when it comes to these three particular things, it reminds me of that vision given to Joseph. And when he told about it, he said, Oh, I saw the sun bow down to me. I saw the moon bow down to me. And even the stars bow down to me. And yet even his father and mother knew that it was people of authority bowing down, the mother, the father, the children. But even as... The sun and the moon and the stars are revealed to us in the day of creation that the sun was made to rule the day, the moon was made to rule the night, and even the stars were to give light. And yet these are the very things that men over the centuries have made other gods out of. They worship the sun, they worship the moon, they have astrology. Mayans build calendars out of it. People built pyramids based upon their location of where the stars are at. All these things shall be smitten by God specifically. That He comes back and says, I am God, that is not, that's my creation. Paul in the book of Romans says, they have taken the creation of God and worshipped it. And these are the things that will be smitten. These are the things that will become dark. The blood, be- well, the moon will never shine forth again like it does with men giving them the credit that only God deserves. So all these things, we can see that God specifically points that they will be addressed on that day that only God is to be worshipped. Now, let me hurry, okay? The food is waiting, but I know. Let's just let it wait a few minutes. The last three verses, let me read them to you. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Please notice here that we switch from the creation of the world to the people of the world. And they are identified by classes and types. If you'll read this, you'll see that it is the most powerful all the way down to the most lowly. People like us. The kings of the earth. Those that have the greatest authority and power among the sea of people, the sea of people, like where the lion or like where the beast comes out of, the beast rises up out of the sea, and yet the, the kings of the earth, and then the great ones, the ones that the kings use, the ones that they depend upon because they're the smart ones, they're the ones that he has at their right hand, the ones on their staff, the ones that are their uh Uh, They they, they go along with the king to give them all the wisdom that he needs. And then the generals, the ones who have their military power in their hands, where they're the strategists. They're the ones that know how to win wars. They're the warriors. They're able to wage war, to take peace from the earth. They bring about famine, heartache, and death. And yet they belong in this hierarchy of all those that stand against God. All the rich and the powerful. The economic powerhouses of the world. The Soros of the world. All those, the Cohen brothers of the world. All those that have the resources. They give their power to the kings of the earth. To make sure that their generals have their resources, their soldiers. And then below them, they rule over everyone else. Whether they be free or whether they be slaves. You say, well we don't have any slaves today. Oh really? You've got to be kidding me. There are people that never, you know, uh, I, I know I have family that have said like this, I, I'm just up to my neck in debt because that's how you own things. And you know who owns them? The bank. They give service and they work. They owe their lives to the bank. All of us, we are either free or bond, but they're all under this hierarchy. Now, all these different people they did, they have two things in common. They all hid themselves from the one who is on the throne, whether they be the greatest or whether they be the humblest. They all have that in common. They all call out. And let us take a look at what they call upon the things that God has brought down to dissolve the mountains, the rocks. They call upon the mountains and rocks. Why? These are the things that never change. They, they're they stable. He's as solid as a mountain. I build my house on a rock. All these things can never change. These are the, the things that people put their confidence in in this world will on that day melt away. The things that they say, Oh, would you please hide me? You have been my authority and I have built my life upon these things. But on that day they melt like all the rocks on all the other things. They would rather have these mountains and rocks fall upon them to crush them rather than to face the one who is on the throne. Because this is the time in which they would say, and I would say, even as they speak, even as they cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, they know that that is not enough. They know that the rocks and the mountains cannot hide them. They speak with helplessness and they speak with hopelessness. They have no hope against God. Who can fight against God? So listen to the gospel. Now is the day of salvation. This is the time in which people need to run to Christ and believe on His blood. To claim His blood. To repent from their sins. Because He is on the throne. He is on the throne. I would like to read just one chapter. I mean, just part of a chapter to you about the type of application we have here. The application is simply this that learning about the doctrines of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ will teach us to be patient and to endure unto the end. And with that in mind, with the knowledge that we have gained, with understanding how God is in control, even in this world that's overrun by sin, we can read this by James telling us in chapter 1 and in chapter 5 of the epistle written by James, we read this, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works Patience. It works patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And in chapter five, he concludes like this Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. That's how long. Be patient and endure unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he he, until he receives the early and the latter rain. So take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. They spoke like this, and so let us take our lead from them. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and ye have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And so let us once again remember the patience of Job. Remember how all those things were taken from him, and yet he did not charge God foolishly. Even today, we have people that say, well, if this is what God is doing, why? Why did he do this? Do not charge God foolishly, but listen to the scriptures. Let us learn patience. Learn patience. Let's lift our hearts up to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we want to thank you for your, your grace and kindness that you have sent your own Son to die for our sins. And in this present evil world, we see the great war against you. And so we ask that we might rest in your promises, knowing, knowing that you have provided for us A place in your presence. We know Lord that you are our safety, our refuge, the place where we can hide, the place of rest, and we strive and want to be your friend now even when the world hates you. And so we pray that these things might be accomplished in all your people, in all your churches, We ask that the gospel be given free reign to be preached, whether it's against the law or not, whether governments fight against us or not. Give us courage to endure and to preach what is right and to stand upon what is good and pleasing in your eyes. We pray these things for the glory of our Christ.